Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. Thank you so much again for joining us here. Job, uh, the righteous sufferer, and we will be spending some five weeks with Job. And this week, what we're going to do is this. We're going to explore the first few chapters of Job. And of course, we're not going to be able to cover everything that we can or or want to in detail. But I want to set up the problem of the book, and I want to help us to wrestle and to understand what as a whole it's saying uh, in light of uh, all the parts that we will be looking at. And then next week, we're going to be looking at uh, Job's, uh, uh, Job's friend's attempt to comfort him, uh, which is a, is a very famous story, of course, uh, in his pain and in his distress. Then we're going to give special attention to what Job's defense is um, against uh, his friend's accusations. And then finally, we're going to wrap up the the series now. I'm not sure how we're going to wrap this up. I'm not sure if we're going to spend five weeks or eight. Uh, So you can pray for me as we as we wrestle with this, because uh, this is a deep book. Uh, This is uh, this is an intense, intense book. I I don't know if there's a more intense book of scripture that we can wrestle with. And so that's where we're going. Uh, But it's going to be super important for us to get our bearings, because as is true of all of Scripture, and no less Job, is that this book, and and, uh, this is so important to understand, that this book was written for you, but it wasn't written to you, right? It's for us, but it wasn't written to us. And that's very important to understand because there are going to be some cultural and linguistic gaps that we're going to need to to sort of get over and and push through in order to understand what the original author was intending to mean. Uh, After all, it is Hebrew wisdom literature. And so this is an ancient book. At the very, uh, the youngest it can be is about 2,500 years old, but most probably, given the kind of Hebrew that is used in the original language, it's probably closer to 3,500 years old. And so this is an old, this is an ancient book. There there are some rumors uh, that possibly Moses may have been the one to write it. This is how old this book is. There's a different language and different culture, different point in history, a different worldview, different assumptions about the world. There's a lot to navigate if we're going to uh, sort of get out what the author intended for us to get out. Now, Job is a very long book, 42 chapters, and it has a particular narrative and flow. And the book becomes a little less intimidating when we get to see its parts in light of the whole. And so that's what I want to do. I want to show you uh, sort of the, 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 um, the construction of the book. And so we have a prologue. Um, uh, Serena read the first part of that. The prologue is chapters one and two, and that sets up the story for us, and it introduces all but one of the characters in the whole book. And then it's capped off with this epilogue, Job 42. And, and Job 1 and 2 and 42 are prose. They're story. The rest of the book is poetry. And so that's why it can be quite uh, difficult to, to sort of enter in poetry for me anyway. There's two things that I don't feel I'm mature enough to handle yet as a person. Wine and poetry. I mean, you know, people taste notes in wine and, and, and you know, like this tastes like I'm not, I'm not there yet. Okay. Uh, and same thing with poetry. Poetry is, is elevated language. It, it reaches into meaning that prose just cannot get. And most of the book is going to be poetry. I want you to think about uh, uh, the book of Job more like Hamilton 
and less like a newspaper, okay? It, it, it sings, it, it, it writes, it, 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 it elevates the language. And then right in the middle, you have this large section, chapters 3 to 37, which is Job and his friends going back and forth. And some of the questions that are explored in this section is, is God just? Is God just? Is, is he right? Is, is he truthful? Is he, is he good? And then uh, we're going to uh, look at, does God run the universe on the strict principle of justice? Is God just? And does the world, is the world, um, uh, you can think about it, is it karmic? Is it tit for tat? What you put in is what you get out as a strict measure of running the world. And then finally, uh, it explores how is Job's suffering to be explained? What do we do with this intense and extreme suffering? And then in chapter 38, uh, uh, God opens his mouth. He responds, and, and he will, we will learn this, that evil is a mystery. And, we don't, and we'll talk about this. We don't like this, but evil is a mystery. God is sovereign, and finally, bless you, uh, wisdom is central. That God runs the world based on wisdom. In other words, what we're going to be, uh, some of the things we're going to be asking is why why do good things happen to bad people? Uh, right, what, we, sorry, why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there evil and suffering in the world? And Job realizes at the end, and I'm going to give it away, that God is all wise. And for him, that is enough. And that's what I want us to wrestle with over the next five to six or seven or eight weeks. This is a wild, untamed undomesticated by our questions kind of book. These next five weeks, or however long we're here, is going to shake us. It it really is. And so I I, I really want to invite you to lean in. And and there's going to be things that we're not going to be able to explore here, uh, but I know gospel communities will be able to dig in a little bit deeper. I love what philosopher Peter Kreeft says about the book. He says this. He says, it is universally recognized that Job is one of the greatest books ever written. It is a masterpiece. It is an all-time classic. To the sensitive reader, it is real magic. It is terrifying and beautiful, and beautifully terrifying and terrifyingly beautiful. It is fascinating and haunting, teasingly mysterious, tender, and yet powerful as a sledgehammer. It can be obsessive as few books can terrifying. I mean, we, we don't, we, we often, uh, particularly as modern readers, we don't come to the scriptures to be terrified, right? We come to be comforted. We come to have our, our answers, uh, our questions answered. And, and while by far, I'm, I'm saying there are sufficient answers to some of these questions. We come, it's, it's a terrifying book. It, 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 it's, it, it's not a, a sweet book story, as it were. And we're going to end up questioning some of our questions, rethinking some of our answers, because every single one of us, every single one in this room has either thought about or will think about uh, this desire to have these questions answered. Why do bad things happen? Why do they happen to good people? Why is there evil in the first place? What do we do with pain? And we're going to face this ancient dilemma and that you've all heard before, most likely, uh, that if, if God is all-powerful, And if God is all good, there's no possible conception. There's no way that evil can exist. But because evil exists, we know this. 
There's no way God can be all-powerful. No way that he can be all good. This is a so-called problem of evil, evil. And now I'm all about, if you know me, if you know this church, we're all about setting right and clear expectations. So let me just set it up right now as clearly as possible. The book of Job does not give us an answer to why there is evil and suffering. It just doesn't. And as we travel together, and I'm going to encourage you, go away and spend the time to read these 42 chapters. They, they, I mean, as they go back and forth, Job and his friends, it, it's hard reading. But I, I, I promise you that you will not leave unchanged after you read this book. It doesn't provide for us an answer. It gets us to focus, rather, on the right questions that Job's suffering raises. I'm not saying there isn't an answer. I'm saying the book of Job itself is not designed to give us that answer. It's designed to uh, set, up, set up for us the questions by which we can explore that, uh, that question and find those answers. What, uh, but I'm, gonna, I'm getting ahead of myself here. But the book of Job, it, it really explores these three things. It explores this, this triangle of tension, right, where, where on, it, this is like a, a, a three-way tug of war. Where there's God's justice at stake. Is he right? And this is a real question for us. Is he right? The retribution principles, on the other hand, the retribution principle says this. That if you do good, you get good. And if you do bad, you get bad. It's, it's, it's karmic in essence. And then Job's righteousness. Is he right? Like, it was Job actually good? Did he deserve what he got? The question of unmerited suffering. And Job's friends will defend the retribution principle. And then Job will defend his own righteousness. And this angry young man called Elihu later on in chapters 32 will defend God's justice. Now, I'm almost done with the intro. The last thing I want to say before we get into it is that the goal of this series is not just to wrestle philosophically or theologically with the reality of evil, but it's actually to equip us to live, suffer, and die well. Like that's what we want to do here as we preach through the book of Job. I mentioned last week that one of the primary reasons why Christianity took over the world in the first few centuries after the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus was because Christians were able to suffer well. That, that was one of the primary reasons why they grew. And so my hope, my prayer is that we would be equipped with a healthy theology of suffering and that we wouldn't be a people of pat answers. Who here has been served by pat, served well by pat answers? I want to help us to become better sufferers and better comforters to those amongst, uh, among us who are suffering while not shying away from the hard questions that suffering present to us. I want to avoid trite and cliche answers to suffering. I love what Anne Lamont says. She says, human lives are hard, even those of health and privilege, and they don't make much sense. This is the message of the book of Job. Any snappy explanation of suffering you come up with will be horse poop. Scubala, she says, right? It, it, it doesn't serve much. And ultimately, my hope is that we would see Jesus the God who has come down to not just show us a way, but that through his broken and suffering and, and painful experience, he has become the way. And so that's where we're going, uh, and this is what we get to kick off today. So before we do that, I want you to help me to pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for enough health 
and enough energy, Lord. I pray that you would help us to um, meet you in this book, in this ancient book. I, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to wrestle with our suffering well. I, I pray that you would, you would help us to know that even when we don't, that you are there with us. And you invite us to struggle. And you invite, you invite us to scream out. And, and you, you invite us, Lord, to experience the depth of our pain. Uh, you invite us to not run away from it, Lord. But we know that you meet us right in the middle of it. Help me to forget the things that are not going to be helpful. And help me to remember the things that will be. And more than anything, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh, Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. And the church said, and the church said, April 2016 is when the trajectory of our lives would change forever. Catherine had gotten into this car accident, this fender bender. It wasn't too bad. I mean, it, was, it, w it shook us up. Uh, it, it, it definitely uh, just changed our, our thinking, and, and uh, it, it definitely was a shock to her system particularly, and absolutely a shock to our bank account for sure. Thank God that she wasn't at fault, uh, which meant we weren't too long without wheels. But a few weeks later in May, Catherine uh, presents with, with a sore on her, I think I if I remember, it was her left arm uh, that was really strange and concerning. And... Uh, she got steroid creams, antibiotics, uh, the works, but the sore only grew, and it, it seemed to spread. Within a couple of weeks, she looked like Joe. Uh, within a couple of weeks, her whole body was covered with sores, and she would be bedridden for about a month, a month and a half or so. Uh, we'd seen doctors, all the doctors that we could, all the specialists that we could, all the dermatologists that we could, and we literally spent all of our money. Like, there was nothing left. Like, we spent all of our money trying to figure out what this was, was trying to figure out maybe this new medication would help. And finally, we found this compound chemist who put something together that was uh, um, uh, help, seemed to help. Uh, and at the end, we, we may think that it was maybe a, a white tail spider bite or something like that that kind of just went, went rogue. And uh, those six to eight weeks for Kath, especially for Kath, uh, really kicked up a lot of mental health issues. She was basically in a dark room for all that time. She couldn't do anything. Uh, she almost lost her job because of it, because she had run out of sick leave. It was a horrible, horrible, horrible period. And to see her in that much pain, we had little kids. We had, you know, Evie was, I don't know, 12, 16 months or so. It was a, it was a very, very, very difficult time for us, not only physically, but emotionally. If you know, if you know what, what pain feels like, you know that pain is not really just about the pain, the physical pain. Pain uh, really invites that emotional and psychological pain. Uh, and that was hard. And just as the clouds begin to part, uh, it, it was uh, July 2016 where she breaks her foot in a few places. And that's bad, of course, but uh, the, the, the real kicker, as it were, was that she tore her Liz Frank ligament. Until this day, she lives with incredible chronic pain. And this, on top of battling autoimmune diseases for years, we were exhausted. On top of the year prior, we had spent about eight hospitalizations between it was just four, uh, four of us at the time, uh, the year prior before Evie was born, uh, between the four of us uh, with meningitis or the flu or pneumonia. It was, it, was, it was wild. It was dark, and it was difficult for us uh, and for Catherine especially who bore the brunt of it. It was excruciating. We had to battle financial strain, um, almost losing her job. As I said, the psychological stress of feeling alone and isolated and more so feeling like either God had abandoned us or even worse, he, he put like a mark on our back, like he was after us, as it were. 
And I don't say any of this to garner any kind of false sympathy or pity, but I thought as I thought about this series, as I've wrestled with this series, and as I've wrestled in prayer for you, the questions that swirl in our minds when we think about pain and suffering, I want you to know that we are not strangers to it. We, we've been to the country of suffering. Our passports are stamped, right? Like we, 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 we know to one degree or another what it means to, uh, and what it feels like to feel like God has abandoned us. I want you to know that preaching on the book of Job is not just a thought experiment for me as much as I love thought experiments, right? And some of you would know, like, we stay up way past our bedtime, right, talking philosophy and theology, drinking black coffee till 2, 3, 4 a.m. in the morning. I love thinking, but this book is going to push us far, far further than thinking. Thinking will not be enough. Scripture and the book of Job in particular will not ask us not to think. If any preacher, if anyone ever tells you who calls himself a Christian and tells you that what you need to do is think less, walk away. Scripture pushes us to think, and it pushes us to the very limits of our thinking. That's the whole point. Not that we stop thinking, but we continue to think because it makes sense. But it's going to push us past thinking. Remember that the book of Job, while it involves suffering, it's not ultimately a book about suffering. It's a book about wisdom. And wisdom has to do with living, right? Wisdom has to do much more with the trenches than with the ivory towers. Because when we think of wisdom, we think a pipe, maybe some brandy, a fireplace, an armchair, right? And we're just talking. No, no, that's not, that's helpful. And that's sweet. And that's good. But wisdom is about the trenches, Wisdom is about living. Wisdom teaches us how to live in the world that we find ourselves in. And if we're going to live well, and if we're going to persevere in Jesus, we need to up our game, especially in the West, regarding what we think about and how we plan to persevere through suffering, period. Because even if everything goes well from here on out, for Catherine and I, we will still live with chronic pain in one form or another, in this, it's a fixed reality in, the, in this world and in our life. It's a fixed reality in Job's world. And my hope is that as we travel together, we would dig deeper and hold on to God as our only hope. And it starts here. Now, I want to focus on chapter 3, which wasn't read. I'll, I'll read it in a moment. Uh, but uh, I, I want us to, to look at what chapters 1 and 2 are doing and what they're not doing. Right? Job is both prose, as we spoke about, and Poetry, And it's incredibly important for us to understand that this sits within the wisdom tradition of Israel. That's so important for us to get because it's not designed to give us a literal historical record of events. It's designed to teach us a true lesson about the mystery of suffering and who really is wise. And so chapters 1 and 2 really sit in the background of what is happening in the book. It sets up the story. Chapters 1 and 2 set up the story for us. And it wants to convey very specific information about who I think is a real historical figure named Job from Uz, a non-Israelite who knew and feared Yahweh. And the point of this heavenly scene in chapters 1 and 2 are not to teach us about the operations of heaven. That's clearly not the point. That that's not what the, the author is trying to do for us. And speculation will only get us thus far. The goal is to set up the true character of Job in light of what his friends will say. This is what I mean. That the purpose of the prologue of chapters 1 and 2 is to help us understand that Job truly is a righteous man. By all accounts and all accords, he is 
good. Even in the sight of a perfect and holy God, from God's perspective, Job is good. That is not to be questioned throughout the book. It does not explain to us why we suffer or the mechanism by which divine beings use to inflict pain on us. And so we we must be careful about how we read and understand and apply it. The points of chapter 1 and 2, I'm going to say it again clearly, is to help us see that Job, in fact, is righteous. And it sets up this question. Does Job, does he obey God because God blesses him? That's That's a question we need to wrestle with. Does Job obey God because God blesses him? And isn't it true then that once God removes this hedge of blessing and protection from Job, isn't it true that if he does that, that he's going to turn and curse God to his face? That's the question. Is Job after God for God's stuff? Or is he after God for God's own sake? Is he serving God for God's own sake? Or is he using God to serve himself, what he, to get what he really worships, health and wealth and family and prosperity? That's why Job is being tested. Job's allegiance, his loyalty is being tested. Job, is Job a fair-weather worshiper of God, right? That when things go well, I'm on God's team. But when they don't, I'm out. You know the friends, the ones that rock with you when you're up but drop you like a hot iron once your life gets hard. Or that person who you see when you pick up your phone, right, they call you and you're like, ah, what do they want from me? We have people in our lives like that, that as soon as we see their caller ID, I mean, you know how stressful it was to live during a time, me, growing up in a time where you had to pick up the phone and then find out who was calling, right? You all know. You all know. So you get to just hit the red button. But we all have people in our lives at one point or another who we know when we see their name on the caller ID, they want something from me. They're a fair weather friend, and that's all they are. Will Job not curse God if he removes from him his family and health and prosperity? And for now, anyway, Job passes the test. He remains loyal to Yahweh, and the prologue, chapters 1 and 2, will come to an end. And as the curtain as the curtain begins to close on this first scene of this epic play, we see a disfigured man who is the greatest man of all the East. He becomes untouchable. We don't know exactly what kind of disease he had. It sounds like a leprous kind of disease, but he becomes a grotesque figure with which even his friends will see. Even his friends, when they see him from a distance, cannot recognize him. From riches to rags. And this is what we find him doing at the end of chapter 2. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And it's real interesting. Uh, This is how poetic the book of Job is. In chapters 1 and 2, whenever we read the word curse, it actually says bless. It's a euphemism. It's it's ironic. Like it's it's supposed to be like a stab. Like, okay, go ahead. Continue blessing God. His wife said, do you still hold fast your integrity? Go ahead. Bless God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, God, uh, Job did not sin with his lips. I mean, so far, so good, right? He seems to, after losing all of his possessions, his children, his health, and we'll, we'll get into, into I mean, th- this is 
This is suffering that I don't think any of us have experienced. Right? Like, like the, I, I don't think any of us, and, and I, I pray that, that none of us would experience this level, this depth, this ferocity of suffering. He seems to hold on to his integrity, to his principle. He rebukes his wife, who surely loves him and would rather see him die at the hands of God than suffer at the hands of God. And we're going to focus on his friends next week and what they do and how they, they approach him. Uh, and after seven days of sitting with him in silence, his three friends come. They sit with him for seven days in silence. It's interesting to know that Job is the one who breaks the silence. And after seven days of silence with his friends, Job initiates this long, drawn-out debate with these words. And I want you to just, just strap on for just a moment because this is probably – Psalm 88 is a psalm of lament, and it's, it's often seen as the darkest psalm in all of Scripture. There's a bit of hope in Psalm 88. Just just f follow with Job. L try to enter into his suffering with him. He says, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, the night that I was born, he's speaking about his birthday. Let that night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. He continues, behold, behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none. Nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's room, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Once come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept, and then I would have been at rest. With kings and the counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their house with silver. Or why was I not hidden as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, troubling and there the weary are at rest there the prisoners are at ease together they hear not the voice of the task master the small and the great are there and the slave is free from his master why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death but it comes not and dig for it more than for hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I feared comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. This has got to be the rawest chapter in all of scripture. It is a scandal 
that you're sitting here on Sunday morning and hearing words like, why did I not expire when I came out of the womb? That is, like, I- if we hear one of our friends say that, we're calling psychology, like, we, we are, we are, like, we're, we're calling the helpline, and, and we should, right? Like, this is, this is, this is pain almost unimaginable. And as an aside, before we comment on what's going on here, I'm, I'm, this is going to sound strange, but I'm deeply encouraged that something like this was not edited out of the Bible or sanitized. Many of us have views of Scripture that somehow, uh, uh, Scripture is just light, right? It's just meant to make us feel good directly. Uh, but, but this wasn't glossed over. Scripture is not a collection of, st- of sterilized stories. It's a record of God's dealing with humanity, mess and all. Now, we don't know how long it's been from the onset of Job's losses and disease to this point. We know at least it's seven days. We know that in chapter 2, he rebukes his wife, and it seemed, and he seems to still be holding it all together. But, how, but he moves. And, and if you know, if you've been through any kind of suffering, you know that it is a roller coaster, right? And if you've been a Christian for, for a while, maybe through your suffering, you've, you've said things like, I trust God, and the next day, you're cursing the day of your birth. Right? Like, like suffering isn't linear. Our, our, our journey through suffering isn't just from A to B to C. Oftentimes, it's A, M, B, F, Z. You're back at A, right? That, that's how suffering works. It's not like this old wooden roller coaster that just goes up and right? That's how we think about, oh, we just, we're, we're a bit up, we're a bit down. We're a bit up, we're, no. It's one of those six flags, great adventures, whirly whoops, you're on the side. You don't really know if you're going forward or backwards. That's what suffering feels like. It's not this old up and down wooden roller coaster. This thing is metal and it's ferocious. And for a while, Job holds it all together. But then in chapter 3, we see him disintegrating. Jeremiah will say something similar. The prophet Jeremiah, he says, Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon, because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. That's God. While Jeremiah is speaking this ways to God, Job's distress is even more acute because he's not even speaking to God. He's speaking to thin air. It feels much more like a complaint in the wilderness rather than a lament of the Psalms. And at the heart of Job's complaint in chapter 3 is his desire to end it. I mean, my man is at the edge of a nine-foot balcony looking, like really questioning, should I just go? And the thing is that he had seven sons, three daughters, right, this number of complete perfection. He had, like, incredible riches, like he could never run out of, he could have done whatever, he, he could never run out of money, ever, ever. He's the greatest of all the men in the East. He says, that is not worth it. I would have rather to not love and loss. It is a modern myth to say I'd rather love and lost than to never have loved at all. Not for Job, not for Job. He said, I, I would rather have had none of it than to have that and then to have what I'm experiencing now. Have you known such pain, such total despair? Do you have room for it in your spirituality, in your discipleship? Do you have a category for this type 
and this level of pain and suffering, both physical and psychological. Not as a category somewhere out there in the ether. Somewhere where maybe some, someone in some impoverished country uh, could experience. But here in this room, in, in this community, in those you love, in yourself. Furthermore, is there a category in your mind that a Christian, someone who knows the gospel and trusts Jesus for their salvation, do you have a category in your mind that these intense emotions are possible for them to experience and express? Because if not, we're at risk of a couple things. First, we're going to cut ourselves off from reality, like period. Life is hard and painful however you cut it. And yes, of course, there's a spectrum of gruesome and extreme pain and suffering. But remember, as Alamon said, even the best lives are riddled with pain one way or another. And to deny this, to deny the fact that all of our lives at one point or another, or maybe for a prolonged and protracted period of time, we will experience pain. If we deny that, we live in a fantasy world. We will be ill-equipped to handle the harshness of life. We live in a very buffered world. Right? But e even in our buffered world where we protect ourselves because of our car insurance and life insurance and the, the opulence with which we live, even then, suffering sneaks in. Kids rebel. Spouses leave. We get cancer. Loved ones die. We get into a freak accident. We're betrayed by a friend. The market crashes. We lose our savings. Somewhere, somehow, we will experience grief and we will we, the question is, be prepared to face it. So what do we do? How do we face a suffering like this? How do we understand suffering like this? Even if we haven't suffered yet to this level, and I, I, I pray that none of us do, is there anything we can do now to prepare ourselves to suffer? Well, the first thing I, I want to mention uh, is that suffering is a mystery. We need to have a category for mystery. Now, I don't mean to say that all of the specific ways we suffer are mysterious. That's not what I mean. Often we suffer as a direct result of our sinful choices or our stupid choices, right? That's, it, we can see that in our lives uh, we suffer because we've done something stupid or done something sinful. For instance, my knee. Now, you're sick of hearing this. I promise this is the last time I'm going to mention it, right, from up here, right? But, but my, like, let's, just, let's just take that. Like, that's some of the worst pain I've ever felt, like, ever. Like, uh, but why? Why did it happen? How did it happen? Well, against all common sense— and against uh, a professional medical advice, and against a lot of y'all, right, keeping me accountable, uh, I was going to the gym like five to six times a week for three hours a day, uh, playing ball, working on my, my shot and, and my crossover for a solid four months straight. It was overload like nothing else because I wasn't used to doing that. It was dumb. Right? Like, let me just, I'm, like, it was stupid. I admit it. And I know some of you on Sunday, you know, you're, you're praying for me, you're worried about me. I'm like, I'm sorry, I want to apologize publicly to you, right? Because you've been praying for something that I'm like working against during the week. I'm limping on Sunday, getting you to feel sorry for me, you're praying for me, right? But then on Wednesday, I'm like, I'm on the court, right? It's, it's just dumb. It's just, it's just stupid. My suffering in that case, it's very clear why I'm suffering. Well, because I'm making stupid choices. Not all of our pain, though. Or maybe not even most of our pain is a result of our stupid choices. Some is a result of our sinful choices. We're unfaithful to our spouse or we confess and we get found out. Regardless, the emotional and psychological toll and the, the chaos that that unleashes into the world is hellish. 
We get drunk and end up driving home and totaling the car, chronically uh, injuring ourselves or even worse, taking someone's life. It's clear that some of our suffering that we experience is a direct result of either our stupidity or our sinful choices. But this clearly is not the case for Job, and it's clearly not the case for all of your suffering and pain. There will be suffering that we will have to endure that isn't a result of those things. And we will search for an answer, and we will often give pat answers to try to satisfy our curiosity. But the book of Job does not scratch that itch. It doesn't, it, it, it teaches us, it teaches us that our curiosity cannot in this regard be satisfied. Our questions of why may not be answered in this life. Again, Peter Creed, philosopher, Peter Creed philosopher, he's wonderful when, when he says, Job is a mystery. A mystery satisfies something in us, but not our reason. The rationalist is repelled by Job as Job's three rationalist friends were repelled by Job. But something deeper in us is satisfied by Job, and it is nourished. It puts iron in your blood. And that's what we need. O oftentimes, we, we, don't, we don't need the why. We need iron in our blood. We need the resources to endure suffering well. And what the book of Job teaches us is that much of our pain and much of our suffering is a mystery that we cannot comprehend. It doesn't mean that there is no purpose in your suffering. It means just that we may not be privy. We may not know what that purpose may be. Remember, only us readers read the prologue. Job has no idea. Job is completely oblivious to the heavenly scene. And so the first thing that the book of Job teaches us and what our own suffering will teach us is that suffering is a mystery. The second thing is that suffering exposes us. Suffering will expose your assumptions about who you are, about who God is, and about how you think the world will run. Many of us assume that at the top of God's CV, right, his holy resume is to make sure you don't suffer. It's to make sure that if I get on God's team, as it were, if I become a Christian, then I will be spared from suffering. And we're surprised by it. Us modern folk, we've created the type of world that we are surprised by suffering. We're shocked by it, but it, always, it wasn't always like this. We, we live, again, buffered lives. We, we're sent into a tailspin if we experience one hundredth of what Job suffered. And I don't say this to shame you or me or, or, or any. It's just the world we live in. But Peter reminds us, Peter in the New Testament, he reminds suffering Christians, beloved, do not be surprised. We're preaching through the book of 1 Peter at the end of the year. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Is it, do we find it strange that there's suffering in our lives and in the world? He says, my loved ones, listen, don't be surprised when you suffer as if something strange were happening to you. But suffering in our world has become this alien intrusion to the point where we are in the modern West. And I say this like with full confidence. We are the absolute worst culture in all of recorded human history to prepare people to suffer well, period. There's no purpose for our suffering in our culture. There's no way that it could serve a purpose because if the purpose, if the purpose of our lives, who here has not said, Christian or non-Christian, all I want you to be, all I want for my kids is for them to be happy, right? That's all I want, just for them to be happy. Where, like, where, where'd, we get, where'd we get that from? Where have we ever learned in Scripture or in life that life is about happiness? Because if life is about happiness, suffering serves 
no purpose. But if life is about holiness, if life is about becoming free worshipers of God, that we're not worshiping God for what he gives us, but because of who he is, then suffering then begins to serve a purpose. Our assumption about God is that his primary job description is to deliver us from suffering rather than be with us through it. And when he doesn't deliver us from suffering, we begin to live the debates that Job is about to enter into. And we either go on a sin hunt in our lives. What did I do to deserve this? Or we blame God and we think him a derelict father who isn't watching out over us. And that leads us to the third thing that the book of Job and our own suffering can teach us. And it's that suffering tests. This was the primary motivation for the accuser in the prologue. He wanted to test Job's allegiance. Will he still serve and obey Yahweh if he removed this hedge of protection? In in other words, is Job a gold digger? Is he a gold digger? Is he with God for his riches, right? Someone who enters into a love relationship with someone just for their money, and if that money and when that money runs out, then they, they bounce. Is this what is happening to Job? How do you develop a love that transcends simply what you receive from someone. This is what the book of Job will, will help us wrestle with. The late Tim Keller, he says this, how can you move from loving God in a mercenary way, which means it's disconnected, to loving God for something else, L- loving God uh, not for God, but for something that God can give you. How can you move from loving God in a mercenary way towards loving God himself? I'm afraid that the primary way is to have hardship come into your life. Suffering first helps you assess yourself and see the mercenary nature of your love for God. I I love God because he gives me something, salvation or otherwise. When your most cherished things are taken from you, you may be tempted to angrily reject him. But then suffering gives you an opportunity. I I want to be real clear, and we'll talk more about this. But suffering doesn't automatically make you good. Suffering doesn't automatically make you holy. Suffering doesn't automatically make you better. You know plenty of people who've suffered greatly and have turned brittle. But then suffering gives you an opportunity. Instead of giving up on God and moving away from him, you could adjust and focus on him in a way that you had never done before. You see, C.S. Lewis was right when he said that God will whisper to us in our pleasures, speak to us through our conscience, but shout to us through our pain to rouse a deaf world. Suffering, even unjust suffering, gives us the opportunity to do the things we need to and ultimately want to do, which is love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength. And strangely, suffering allows you to love your neighbor well too, because rather than suffering making you bitter, it can actually make you better. It can actually make you someone with an expanded life, someone who can see suffering and actually then attach yourself to that person. Have you ever met a beautiful person, someone who has a beautiful soul, someone who is a person of deep character, of deep strength, of deep resolve, of abiding joy, a person who is able to relate to others and love well, who hasn't suffered greatly? I've never met someone like that. The most beautiful people are often the ones who are the wounded people who have found that God is not on the other side of their suffering, but with them in it. So suffering, yes, it's a mystery. 
We'll explore more of that. Suffering exposes us. It exposes our assumptions. And suffering will test our allegiance. But how do we learn to suffer well? You see, Job. Job was a righteous man. Greater than all the men of the East. But there was another one who was greater than Job. Greater than any man in all of the world. Who was completely and utterly sinless. You see, Job lost his family. Who he had, what, for maybe 30, 40 50 years, but there was another who lost the father that he had for eternity. Job, Job's body was stricken with boils and sores, but there was another who was stabbed through his hands and his feet and his side. Job wanted to die. And he said, why did, not I, why did I not expire when I came out of the wound? But there was another who actually suffered unto death, one who actually did die. Job wanted his day to be turned into darkness, but there was another whose day was literally turned into darkness for three hours. You see, we can learn things from Job, and we will, but we can only be transformed by the true and the better Job. By looking at Jesus, the one who realizing that he did not have to suffer. He was in the ultimate buffered world, and yet... He came, the almighty, the creator, the one who will speak, the one who will be the voice out of the storm came. The creator of heaven and earth came and God saw the state of the world. And what he saw was that the world was suffering and he didn't turn a blind eye or didn't come and snuff out suffering with brute force. But he came in the form of a man willing to take the suffering of the world onto his shoulders. Listen, he was broken so that your suffering would not be wasted. He was broken so that we would become whole. You want to know how you can grow in your ability to withstand the suffering that is inevitable? You want to know how you can become someone who is able to sit with people in their distress and not freak out? How uncomfortable is it to be in the presence of suffering? Hey, we, we feel like we just need to say something. But, but how can we become the people that can actually connect with people in their suffering, suffer with great hope? Knowing things, learning things, it's not unimportant and will be helpful and can be helpful, but we need to see. We need to see someone who not suffered well as an example only, but who suffered for us. You see, you look at Jesus, the only true righteous one, the one who would commit no wrong, the one who would commit no evil, no malice, the one who for you and for me suffered and endured the shame of the cross. Job says this. I want to invite the band up, but Job, because I'm done, I'm done. Job, Job said this. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. Jesus says, for the joy that was set before me, I endured the cross, and I despise the shame so that you wouldn't have to. Jesus says, I suffered so that your suffering would not go to waste. Jesus says, I suffered so that the suffering that was designed to make you into a hideous, self-loathing monster can actually make you beautiful. Now, isn't it good news that your suffering will never be wasted, but will be turned into an eternal weight of glory? And so my only application, look at him, the one who suffered, the one who had all the right in all of the universe to avoid suffering, and yet for our sake, to, 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 to murder suffering, to murder pain, so that it would all go into the pit of hell that will be thrown into the pit of fire one day, into the lake of fire, 
does not have to harm us. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that our suffering will not go to waste. And we don't know what to do a lot of the time with all the suffering that even we are experiencing right now. We don't know how to think about it. We don't know where you are in the midst of it. We don't know how to respond and to react in a way, Lord, that honors you. So help us to wrestle. Lord, help us to not feel like we need to cover things up here in this community. Help us to wrestle with our doubt. Help us to to wrestle with the feelings of abandonment. And, And help us to be honest there because you are there with us. You will not change what we continue to deny. And so help us, Lord, to be who you need us to be for this time, for this generation, for this neighborhood, and for this community. All these things we pray in Jesus' holy and beautiful name. The church said, amen.